You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the Skylight Books podcast, or podcast, crowdcast channel, <laughs> this digital space. Um, we're really, really excited to be here this evening to celebrate Be Not Afraid of Love with Mimi Zhu and Johnny Sun. Um, we're so happy that you're all here as well from all over, it seems. My name is Hallie. I'm the events manager at Skylight. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce first Johnny Sun. Johnny is the New York Times bestselling author of Goodbye Again and a screen and TV writer who wrote for the Emmy-nominated sixth season of the Netflix original series, Bojack Horseman. He is the author and illustrator of Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien 2 and the illustrator of Good Morning, Good Night by Lin-Manuel Miranda. He is currently writing for a new to-be-announced hour-long drama series about technology, as well as developing his own film and TV projects. As a doctoral candidate at MIT- Oh no, it's still going. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's good, that's good. Um, and a creative researcher at the Harvard Metal Lab. His research focuses on place and community online. He has a master's degree in architecture from Yale and a bachelor's degree in engineering from the University of Toronto. Mimi Zhu, they, them, is a queer Chinese-Australian writer and artist. They explore the many intersections of love and fear, and they facilitate workshops that are dedicated to the healing power of the written word. Their work has been featured in the New York Times, Paper, ID, The Guardian, Printed Matter, Vice, and more. They are based in Brooklyn, New York. Um, Please join me in giving Mimi a huge welcome to the stage. Uh, We'll get off with the reading. Hi, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, Thank you, Johnny, for being here. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in all across the world. I love how everyone is dropping their locations. Please keep doing that if you feel comfortable, because it's really beautiful how we use the internet as a tool, as complicated as it is to connect with each other from the distance that we have between each other. So hi to everyone and thank you for being here. Um, As you may know, I just released my book, Be Not Afraid of Love, last Tuesday. And I am so grateful to everyone for showing support because this has been a project from the heart and from the deep wells of my spirit. And I'm going to do a reading today from the chapter Miracle. And I want to give some context to people for those who haven't read the book yet. Of course, it's only been out a week. Um, But the book essentially is about recovering and healing from an abusive relationship and dealing with and surviving intimate partner abuse. And that has been a journey that's allowed me to deconstruct and reconstruct everything I knew about love through nature, through queer community, and most of all, through myself. So the beginning of the book kind of details the toxic relationship, especially an assault that I survived um, around five years ago now. And it's been a really long, arduous, beautiful, treacherous 
honest moving journey. And so today, because I really feel, I feel quite overwhelmed, but I feel very miraculous that I have survived and that I got to make this art, create something. Um, I want to read to you about miracles because I believe that my survival was a miracle. I believe that us being together right now is a miracle. And I believe that being able to breathe through the chaos and uncertainty is a miracle as well. So I'm going to read from the chapter Miracle right now, which is one of my favorite chapters. And feel free to read along with me if you have a book with you. Curiosity is conditioned out of so many of us from an early age. We have our first encounters with death and violence, and we are taught various ways to grow up to survive in cruel conditions and serve a societal purpose. We are quickly told that our existence is simply not good enough and that we must work and fight for basic needs and goodness. Our curiosity is deemed useless, trivial, and meant for children. And we are taught that there is no room left for wonder. We are given strict guidelines to stick to the status quo, to become productive parts of society and obtain joy, as if happiness were a product we could purchase. We become enticed by the universes that we see through our blue screens, and we become so convinced by these simulations of living that we forget how to live. In the digital age, we are torn in so many directions, pulled toward a realm that begs us to consume more and notice less. On the subway, I see so many ducked heads and arched backs staring at their screens, and nobody notices the subway performers playing their beautiful songs. If we simply looked up, we would see so much. Without our curiosity, there is so much that we forget, and we become absent in our everyday lives. Realizing the precious nature of each passing moment reveals not only that you have survived, but that you continue to live. It was difficult to believe in anything as miracle after surviving my relationship with X. In the thickness of my grief, I wanted to die. I could barely sleep or eat, let alone work and socialize. And my movements were as minimal as I could muster. The only thing that mattered was that I got through another day. What I could do was sit with myself and stare out the window. And when I found the strength, I took myself on short strolls close to home. I noticed crisp leaves falling, uproarious choruses from an orchestra of cicadas, and sweet and salty scents all around. When I did, I accessed a vulnerability that had been muted long ago, and I noticed a lot more around me. In this fragile and precarious state, all of my senses were heightened and my curiosity was coming back. Sometimes on my walks, I would see couples embracing. And while at first it felt like a stab to the heart, I became so moved because I was reminded that even in my hopelessness, love was all around. It did not have to be mine, but it was still connected to me. I felt lucky to bear witness to love. 
I watched floating clouds, swaying trees, and streams of sunbeams dancing with the day. And I felt immensely moved because I realized that I shared life with all the small miracles around me. In the healing of my heartbreak, I began to see the miracle within me too, inseparable, inevitable, and intertwined. At what felt like the precipice of death, I was reminded of my miraculous life, and I was reborn. In our lifetimes, I think that we are reborn many times. While I may not remember my initial arrival from my mother's womb, I recall many resurrections. Most of the time, they came after pain-stricken periods of heartbreak and grief, when it was difficult to continue. However, in my continuance, my curiosity returned and my wonder widened. My curiosity was especially heightened when I strengthened my relationship with Earth. Some days I sat by the ocean to see how each, parallel, each wave paralleled the deep rhythms of my own breath. Sometimes I would watch the rain as it replenished Earth and relieved her of a drought. And I saw how each raindrop mirrored every tear that I have shed. Any time that I could, I watched the setting sun in her brilliant continuance as she reenacted the rebirth of each passing day. The word miracle is technically defined as a noun, but what if we thought of a miracle as an action? In the same way that Bell Hooks describes love as a verb, what if we believed that we are engaging in miracle as a movement and that we are constantly miracling with every sacred breath. If we believed as we grow from children into adults that every single breath we take is an enactment of miracle making, then perhaps we could see life as a gift instead of something we must prove ourselves worthy of. What would shift in our world if we believed in ourselves as living miracles? Thank you. I um, I love that part. I before we like while we were in the green room, I was just telling Mimi how much I love their book, and how like I I reread it again before I talked, and I've just been like marking up every page and dog earing most of it. Um, but that that um that chapter on miracles um, I thought was particularly moving. I thought every chapter was phenomenal. Um. And I don't know, I just wanted to like, I feel like I just want to shower you with praise and <laughs> tell you how much this book, um, oh, here's a compliment. I, um, I talked to my therapist about your book this morning and was just, and not, and not in a bad way, in, 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 like, in the way of like, I've, I've been rereading this book again and it's really been um, very powerful and it's been affecting me a lot. And um, so I just wanted to thank you for, for writing it because I feel like it's already, and I've seen you sharing about it. I feel like it's already been touching so many people. And um, it's just, it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly elegant. Um, I don't have a question, just a comment. <laughs> thank you, um, so thank you. I guess I will start by asking you, um, particularly about the reading you just made you kind of talk about um, connecting with earth and with nature. And I think a lot of your um, really stunning uh, 
metaphors and symbols that you use throughout the book are directly connected with um, with Earth. And I was just wondering at what sort of at what point did that connection? Did you start to feel that connection taking place? And how did you kind of hone that practice? And how did you? How were you able to kind of like take those pieces and and articulate them? Because I think there it is something this like kind of idea of miracling and this idea of kind of love being us and around us is a feeling, but it's it's so hard to put it into words. And I think Mimi as kind of like the feeler and the person um, intersecting with Mimi as the writer uh, was really incredible and powerful. And I thought those like those two versions of your being really aligned really perfectly for this book. Um, and so I, I was kind of just like, let's talk about that for a bit. Thank you so much, Johnny. Um, you talking to your therapist about the book is truly the highest form of compliment <laughs> because I'm such a huge advocate for therapy, for people moving through just being honest about their emotions. And I think that's really what the book is about and what I aim for it to be, just kind of sitting with the nuance and complexity of every emotion, right? And naturally in the world that we live in, which is so complex and layered, it complicates our emotions as well. And I think in my book, I really want to zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out. And when people ask me what this book is about, I say relationship, right? Because we are in this entanglement of relationships just like that are deeply interconnected and deeply entwined generationally. Generationally, I really, I was like, what am I saying? That was a tongue twister. Yes, I glitched. That and spiritually too, I feel like it's mm -hmm. just ongoing plethora of emotions that are kind of unwinding and causing like these beautiful interconnections. And I think that actually starts with ourselves. I think mm -hmm. that starts with our child, childhood, our curiosities that are grounded in childhood. And the mother that we come from, not just, you know, the the maternal figures in our lives, but also Mother Earth, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I talk about this book being about relationships, I actually am calling people to investigate every relationship that they are in. And I think something that really clicked for me was that as I was writing about my relationship with X, which was a relationship that took so much space and time and weight in my life, I actually had to then explore my other relationships in my life, not just with my friends, my family, but also with the state, you know, yeah. with like state mm -hmm. violence, right? With immigration, with yeah. white supremacy. And then on top of that, investigating my relationship with earth and climate change and global warming and all of those things. And while that all seems like an interconnected web, while I'm looking at all these relationships, I'm seeing the core of it and at the core of it is like me and my fear and my love. Mm -hmm. And the kind of force that is feeling that fear and my love a lot of the time is my child self. Mm. So that's like a very like long-winded way of basically saying that I think returning to earth can be a very simple act, but mm -hmm. we live in such a complicated society and world that tries to make us forget about the simple miracle of earth. Yeah. And so 
the way that I reconnected with earth was getting in touch with my childhood self again in the ways that as a kid, I'd go to the beach, right? And I'd put my toes in the sand, right? As a kid, I would yeah. cut like put caterpillars in jars and watch them morph into butterflies. Like it was these simple miracles that I was actively miracling with that I wasn't separated mm -hmm. from. And I think as I grew up and I got more cynical and it got more complicated, I got to a place where I genuinely wanted to die. And I was like, what is the most simple thing I can do right now? The most simple mm -hmm. thing I can do is look at a leaf the way I did as a child, right? Is to be by the ocean the way I was as a child and just feel its energy move with me. So it's in a way returning to basics, but that's not an easy task because I think the very simple things in life have kind of been taken away from us. And it takes yeah. intense healing, intense dedication, intense solidarity and support to return to something so beautiful and miraculous. But in saying that, I want us all to remember that it never leaves us. The miracle never departs, it never, quits it's always inherently there we just have to return to it somehow yeah yeah <laughs> i love and i and later in that chapter I, I thought something that was really really powerful was you and i don't know the exact phrasing you used but you talked about how um we've sort of been i guess conditioned to think of miracles as like these big rare occurrences and the more you notice them as these kind of common everyday things and, and the more that you can it's almost like you're training a way to see um miracle and delight and joy in what's around us as opposed to kind of waiting for like the big thing to happen and yeah. i thought that like that was really really beautiful um the place you put it in the book um i also wanted to talk about like this idea of of kind of like the scale you've said of like moving in, like zooming out and zooming in and zooming out and zooming in, because I thought that was so elegant the way you did it in the book. Um, because it is, like you said, a story about um, you kind of coming out of and healing from this abusive relationship. But at the same time, you're able to connect it to so many things. And I, I, I thought it was such a, and because you talk about community and connection so much, I just, I thought it was so, elegant and so generous and so kind of intentional the way you you shared and you looped in other authors and other works and other kind of um, thinkers and other ideas that you had been living with and that you had been kind of it really felt like you were kind of taking in everything and sharing it with us and I just I wanted to ask you about that where that instinct came from or if that was something you already you always wanted to have in that in this book because as I was reading it it just felt so I just loved when like you would you would quote bell hooks or you would quote um like braiding sweet grass or talk about um the abolitionist movement and the way that you were able to take all these kind of very big ideas and relate them to what you were going through and then kind of zoom back out and zoom back in was so um, clear. And so like kind of, there was so much clarity to it and it felt so, it just felt, it felt really amazing. Um, but I wanted to ask you about that kind of intention. Thank you so much for saying that. And it feels really good to have that 
be read as clear because I definitely <laughs> yeah. thought, you know, I was nervous about that. I thought, does it feel like I'm jumping around, you know? But yeah. I think something that obviously is part of the book too is that so much is nonlinear, right? Mm -hmm. And so much healing is nonlinear. And I think for me, I really wanted to be dedicated to writing this book as a person, as a person who's experienced trauma, as a survivor, as mm -hmm. a miracle, right? As a reader, a learner, a student, and a community member, right? I'm, I'm all of these things at once, and I wanted to bring all of those elements and dimensions of my identity into that. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I think it's really important to not only, of course, always speak from the eye, especially when I'm speaking on really big topics or touching on topics like abuse and intimate violence, to speak from my own experience, right? And to never right. feel like I'm speaking for anybody or telling anybody how to feel or what to do, because everyone's experience is so personal and intimate and theirs to hold. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, I the energy that kind of transmuted itself in my survival, the realizations, the revelations that I had was through learning from the relationships around me, learning from the mm -hmm. books that were gifted to me that I happened upon, you know, that I wanted to read for such a long time. And it felt like I was in dialogue with Bell Hooks, with Audre Lorde, with Thich Nhat Hanh, with Robin Wall you know, it feels like they were holding my hand and they didn't even know that. With you, Johnny, you know, the way that you write, the way that you write about mental health and the simple delights and the miracles that you see in everyday life, that feels like you holding my hand as I move through my healing. I think that's a gift that writers really, you know, I hope that all writers feel proud of that ability to communicate in such an intimate way. And for me, I wanted to communicate in that intimate way with all my readers while at the same time being like, this thought did not begin with me. And I could not mm -hmm. have gotten to this place without the teachers in my life and the relationships who honestly, I think have been the greatest teachers and continue to be the greatest teachers of my lifetime, of my work. So I think, again, you know, this book being about relationships, I wanted to show all the relationships that I have in this yeah. book, whether I personally knew them or not, I feel strongly connected to every single person that I sourced, that I acknowledged. Um, and my really good friend, Nema Gatheri, they're a um, guerrilla theorist, and they wrote this um, piece a while back talking about rigorous citation, especially of yeah. Black feminist writers. And I do feel like it is part of our ongoing history that especially Black and Brown writers, Black and Indigenous writers, are constantly overlooked, erased, you know, from this, like, from history, you know, from literary history, from art history, all of it. And so I think it is my role as a writer to be very rigorous and intentional in who, in the words that I cite and the ideas that I reference, because it definitely did not start with me and I'm just transmuting and translating it through my own personal experience. And I'm so grateful for every thinker, feeler, teacher who has come before me. And I always want to be grateful for that. Yeah. It, it makes me think of um, the last line you wrote in your acknowledgements. Um, well, the last two lines you write and this is, I, I feel like this isn't a spoiler, 
um, even though it's the end of your book. <laughs> but you're right. And finally, thank you to my ancestors for bringing me into being and guiding me into this sacred existence. And then you say, one day I will be an ancestor too. And I kind of thought, I thought that was really striking um, because like you said, I feel like this book, I mean, I felt like my hand was being held as I was reading this book and I, and I can, I could just, I was just moved by like imagining um, how impactful and how meaningful this book will be. And it already is to um, so many readers. Uh, but I also wanted to point out, I guess the question that I'm going to lead into in a very clumsy segue is um, I, I love reading the acknowledgement sections of books. Um, and I feel like I always try to like sneak in a last essay in the acknowledgements and you you did that uh very well because it, it just it made me feel like i could feel how kind of connected and grateful you were to everyone that you mentioned in here um so i guess my i guess like i want to hear a bit more about um the process of like the the process of the community that um helped you write this book specifically your your editors um, friends of yours who are writers, kind of the, and also just the, because, I think because I'm so struck by how elegant this is, I'm just like, I want to know, I I have to believe that it didn't just come out all at once because it's it's so humbling yeah. as a writer for me to be like, oh my gosh, this is so, so clear and elegant and um, beautiful. And like, I, I think for my sake, I need to hear that there were a lot of drafts or that there was, there was a process involved to it. Um, just because it's, yeah, I want, I want to hear about that. And like, what, what, when you had, I guess when you had pitched it, um, or if you, if you had pitched it, um, even what, what sort of was that book originally in your mind? And when did it change? Was it always going to be um, kind of this kind of telling of um, your relationship with X? Was it always going to be modeled after the stages of grief? And, and slash or when did those kind of start to come into play and when did that start to become clear? Yeah, um, I love that you use the word elegant to describe my writing. Like it means so much to me because I write about really messy shit, <laughs> you know, like that's kind of, what I think a lot of my writing has veered toward. I, mm -hmm. you know, have read some of my old newsletters and my older pieces. And I think there was always a part of me, especially when I was younger, that was a little scared to show the more messy, uncertain, ugly shadows, right? That I have yeah, yeah. dealt with, that I've been confronted with. But I think as an artist who has grown, as a person who has grown, as a spirit who mm -hmm. has grown, I become a lot less afraid of the shadows that I know, you know, are with me. Uh, and I think the way this book came to be, the way, maybe the way that it sounds elegant is because I finally sat with it all, right? And I think definitely at first, I actually thought the book would be maybe a bit more motivational, that meaning less insight into my very painful experiences. I actually did not expect to write so in depth about the trauma that I've endured. I kind of always mm -hmm. wanted to kind of keep that really close to my chest. And of course it was like a reaction based on fear. 
But as I was writing it, as I was even pitching it and, you know, working with my editor and agent, um, I realized that if I was to write something, right, I needed it to be really, really true. And that Mm -hmm. meaning that it had to be deeply honest and it had to Mm -hmm. zoom in and zoom out and zoom in and zoom out because that's what I think about on a daily basis, right? That's how I relate to the world around me. That's how I've healed, to be honest. So I actually worked with an all Asian American team, which is so rare. Like yeah. I've been blessed by the spirits, my ancestors. And I think my agent Claire is in the call right now. But yeah, yeah Claire. Yeah, woo. <laughs> Seriously, working with an all Asian American team was groundbreaking. I didn't think that was possible. I was always very intimidated of the publishing world because I come from mm. a very DIY background. Like my writing got traction because I was posting online, making my graphics in Microsoft Word, you know, like Oh my gosh. Yeah, That's like, phenomenal. I could not even afford a Photoshop membership, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. writing newsletters that I wanted to make sure were free and accessible to the public. Yeah. And just having this group of Asian American women and femmes support me and back me has meant has been so deeply transformative. And they actually allowed me to feel safe to explore the shadows. And so that's kind of how this book came into being is that it morphed. Oh, Johnny, I promise you, it morphed so much. It was going to be way more like surface level, I think, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We actually mm-hmm. even talked about it just being a collection of my Instagram posts, right? And I think sure, that's yeah. very different to what I've, yeah. what what this book has become, what I hold in my hands. But, you know, for example, if it was a, like a more coffee table book vibe or an art book, yeah, I think that wouldn't have felt like I was really saying what I needed to say, right? And I think short, like I, I really love the writing that I post on Instagram, but what I have posted there is only the surface layer of why I write about it. I think people have been so moved by what I share on Instagram, but I think up until now, they haven't realized why I write it, why I'm so invested in healing, in community, in investigating my mistakes, my flaws, my shadows, my insecurities. Like I'm so committed to writing about that stuff because I'm confronted with it constantly. And so it is because of my all Asian and American team I felt safe enough to vocalize a lot of these things and came up with the book that I have. Um, so yeah, I'm really grateful and I've actually really um, wanted to continue just working with fellow cutie pop writers and connecting with fellow cutie pop writers, you know, whether they've published anything or, uh, yeah. you know, budding and aspiring writers who I think that's being a writer already. And just yeah. I allowing us to feel safe in vocalizing the things that we were told were unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, the, 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 the way you write about shame too, uh, which I will not butcher in trying to say in my own words, but when you, I feel like that chapter um, was also something that really, really struck me because it made me understand that like, I think as, I mean, I, 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 I will speak from my, like for myself, but like, I feel like I have been 
there are things that I did not realize I was kind of holding in a in a shameful way or in a way that kind of related to like feelings of shame and just the ways that you talk about um, kind of emerging out of that or or trying to be free from it. Um, it's really powerful. And so for anyone who hasn't gotten to that part yet, um, watch out because it's it's really it's really great. And it, it made me think a lot about how um, kind of the, the discipline and the courage um, that you must have kind of worked on and that you continue to work on in order to be as truthful as you are and be as honest because um, it is, I think the power of this book, like you said, is how how you, you get into those, um, the sort of like messier elements of, 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 of what makes like what makes you who you are right and and that to me that's the part those are the parts that i felt that i like related to the most or that i felt most um touched by because it's not just like a clean perfect like ascended version of mimi yeah. it's kind of like oh i i'm getting to know the real you and i thought that was incredibly brave and incredibly kind of vulnerable and transparent um and i i guess i want to talk about you mentioned Instagram and I think we both have come up where I did specific generation of writers um, who've come up online and yeah. as sort of, I don't even know what the term is anymore, but we're not content creators, but we're, we're like artists who have kind of emerged or found a voice or found something um, online, and I've always felt this very messy relationship to the internet because, for for a lot of the reasons you said, where it, it there's a flattening effect. Um, there is, in the book, you talk a lot about, and I, I really appreciated this: the kind of like capitalistic forces that like our current internet culture is built on, and how it's it's a tool for separation and a tool for flattening. And even though it promises connection, it kind of, it kind of morphs it. It 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 um it poisons that kind of idea of connection. Um, but there's still there is a paradox because that's how we have found, that's how like we found each other, right? That's and that's how we found. That's I can speak for myself. That's how I found most of my um, peers and friends and people I look up to and respect. Um, and so I wanted to just like kind of. I, what what do you think about all of this? Because it's it's so. I I will say that I've started to sort of divest from yeah producing work online, um, just because at some point it it starts to feel like I mean I think the process of writing books which which do let you explore things with more depth, um, it sort of lets you kind of see the matrix of the internet a little bit too clearly, yeah. <laughs> and it. It kind of, to me, I'm like, oh, I don't know how to, I thought I was being honest for a long time. Yeah. Um, but now I don't know how to, because it feels so, like you said, so surface level, you can't get that much. Yeah. And it's something I've been struggling with a lot. So I wonder if you're struggling with that too. Thank you for sharing that, Johnny, because I mean, it, it is the both end of it, right? It's, it's very complicated yeah. and as much as we, can are grateful for the internet and the tool that you know we 
the way that we have used that tool at the same time i think we're very aware of its limitations and honestly sometimes it's harm and i think for me the internet is such a boundaryless space you know yeah. there's no boundaries there like people say whatever they want feel and then just rapidly type it out and yeah. it can get really turbulent and really chaotic and really overwhelming and for me i'm so grateful every day for the ways and the people that i've connected with through the internet i would not have written this book without the internet and i will very like humbly say that you know like i'm grateful for it every day or the same times if i didn't have boundaries with it it would completely destroy me um so yeah i absolutely do struggle with it constantly and i've become very tired of producing content not because i don't believe in the content that i like create you know <laughs> i hate that <laughs> i don't want to do it for a following i don't want to do it for relevancy you know i want to mm -hmm. do it because i genuinely back what I'm saying and mm -hmm. I don't want it to be digestible and I don't want it to be graphic and colorful and I think that has been a way for me to you know kind of create something that is recognizable in the, in the internet and I will continue to do so but I think yeah. the internet is such a race for relevancy that it calls you to just constantly just pull stuff out of you when you don't feel like you even have the capacity to and so for me, yeah, boundaries has been important and kind of getting to a place where I'm like, I can actually post what I want, yeah. when I want to. I don't have to feel pressured. And I do believe that my readers actually really support my well-being because that's what my book advocates for, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For my well-being, for everyone's well-being and healing, understanding that the boundaries I'm taking is not me like being insincere or forgetting or being forgettable or disposable, right? It's just yeah. me setting the boundaries that I need to. Um, that being said, it's easier said than done. And it is part of survival too, right? It's a part of um, paying rent, you know? Yeah. Like it's, it's really real, it's really real. And kind of going back to your initial thing about shame, like I don't wanna feel ashamed for doing the work that I need to do also to live, to pay my rent, to pay my bills, while at the same time, really hoping that people understand the boundaries that I need to make um, to survive in such a turbulent, intense internet world, especially as yeah. you get more visibility, more traction, more supporters. So yeah. yeah, the internet is a strange place, but hey, it brought us together and it brought everyone <laughs> in together and that's yeah. really important to me and i hope that everyone who uses the internet you know is always extending that gratitude for the tool that it is especially i think queer people of color who have felt really lonely growing yeah. up and you know i was on tumblr.com like religiously you know like <laughs> you know i feel like it was a place it was a retreat and i think it's changed a lot since those days as well and um, I just hope that all of us 
do set those boundaries with the internet, knowing how important it is to us at the same time. So I think it's a it's a duality there. Um, and it's about balance as well. So yeah. Right. And I, I love that your answer comes back to um, kind of the themes of your book, which is kind of um, the idea of like looking at it as a relationship that you this, the idea of setting boundaries, the idea of like kind of having a healthy relationship to it. Um, yeah. Because yeah, the thing I was thinking of, as you were saying, and which you mentioned was that for marginalized writers and marginalized people, it's, it was the, the greatest joys I feel are when I feel connected, that the, this is the only way that I have to feel connected um, in, in certain ways. And there's that, like the power of that is, is sometimes really hard to, to grapple with when you're also looking at it as like, well, yeah. are they capitalizing off of that? How are they trying to like, how are these platforms yeah. um, making those feelings feel even more intense in order to get you to continue to be on it? Um, and in, in order to like kind of get you um, to, to lose your boundaries to it. And so, I don't know, it's, it's complicated, but I, I appreciate what you, what yeah. you said about it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's also real. And, you know, I think as marginalized people, as queer people of color, I think, you know, you have to, you have to use the tools that you have, even if it's not as much as like, I don't know, a more privileged person would get and, I think for me, like, the literary world really did not pay attention to me for a while. No. I I didn't, um, like, they weren't paying attention to my work and my writing, and I got so much rejection, and I felt so, that imposter syndrome, right, of, like, feeling like mm -hmm. an Asian person whose story was kind of cast aside or was not tokenized even right yeah. like I there's so much tokenization when it comes to all kinds of media and I yeah. I felt like for a long time my work was not considered important or paid attention to by a lot of like white literary spaces and it was through kind of honestly going to like the Asian American Writers Workshop and sitting in on like talks yeah. like this and just listening intently to the way, you know, fellow Asian writers and black and brown writers kind of got their beginnings so much of the yeah. time. Honestly, I, I've learned that it's through really hard work and through connecting directly with people. Like for me, yeah. like the internet has been such a precious tool because it's allowed me to connect directly to people. And it wasn't like, for example, a publisher who saw my work and was like, yes, we want you. It was actually the people who supported my work, right? That allowed yeah. me to have a following, that allowed me to have a platform where publishers saw that and they were like, oh, the people really like this person. The people like yeah. this thing, right? So I think it's the people that got me to where I am today. And I wouldn't have connected to the people without the internet. And yeah. in that way, it's felt really DIY. It's felt really like connected 
And it's felt like a practice that aligns with what I think about community at all times and how I want to keep moving forward with community. I think as much as I am grateful for any literary recognition I get, any prestige, I'm more invested in the people. Yeah, yeah that's incredible. Um, and I commend you for, um, like you said, this like this idea of, oh, I'm going to do a book based on my posts. Um, that like initial, I feel like that was that was my initial first thought of like when I was starting to think of a book I was like I'll just make it a book of tweets and <laughs> kind of like the 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 evolution that um because I I, I unfortunately I feel like a, I have a lot of I, I guess I'd say I sometimes I notice that the, the evolution doesn't always happen um yeah. but I commend you that it that it really you've really grown and like this this feels like such a like an ascended kind of um, product or ascended kind of work from you. Um, I wanted to ask you about kind of sticking to the theme of, I guess, like the DIYness and the um, the community of it. Uh, these illustrations, ah! uh, I understand, are um, you are you have you worked with um, an illustrator on them, and I, I was wondering if you could just talk about. A little bit about because I I I am also an illustrator and so I'm kind of um, very deeply kind of interested in the the process of this of of who this illustrator is to you um, at what point did did you know that you wanted your pieces each of these pieces illustrated and in what ways and how you worked with with them. That is my good friend Somnath Bhatt. Um, I uh -huh. will link the Instagram in the chat. Um, like unreal. Incredible. I like they're breathtaking. These, yeah. These, yeah. Adds Sorry. such an element to the book, adds that visual yeah. aspect. Like, yeah. You like we came up with a bunch of keywords. I came up with a bunch uh -huh. of keywords for the chapters. And without reading the book yet, because I wasn't, you know, ready to share it, they knew. Like, they just knew. And we're, we're, we are friends. Like, we hang out and we have, like, a personal relationship. And I think there was also that that really allowed the work to flow. Um, yeah. Because we see each other as more than just, like, artists that we admire, even though, of course, that is the relationship there. But we also yeah. see each other as, again, complicated people. And I think mm -hmm. they saw me so thoroughly and I knew that they would. And I told, you know, my publishers that I was really dedicated to hiring a friend because yeah. there's no one I feel more connected to in this world than the people that I am close to. And I'm, you know, very lucky to know a lot of people who are extremely talented and extremely, you know, emotionally in touch and, um, that translates into beautiful artwork. So I will link Som's uh, Instagram yeah. in the chat so you all can see. He's made merch for Mitski, you know, like an icon. Oh, yeah. an icon. And South Asian and somebody who I love in my community. And I'm like, why would I want to uplift anyone else's work but yours? And also they uplifted my work through their art. So it felt like a moment of reciprocation. Um, the ability to pay my friend felt so good, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't want to just rely on um, institutions all the time just to, like, allow us all to 
be platformed i want us to be able to do that for each other so yeah i love psalms so much and they added such a intimate beautiful illustrative part to the book that i think mm -hmm. honestly if you look back on each illustration you'll see the themes that i'm talking about right like the spiral oh, yeah. being such an element yeah. exactly <laughs> <laughs> you know and i think that for me showed a deep understanding so yeah thank mm -hmm. you for that and let me link their stuff in the chat but amazing yeah as you as you write that out uh, i wanted to remind everyone that we are doing questions at the end of this uh which i think is coming up soon but if you have any questions please uh enter them submit them to the ask a question link or just in the little chat box i think both of them work uh I want to ask you, let's see. Oh, these are all my notes that I took in the back of your book. Um, let's see. Um, let's see what what have we not talked about here? Um, let's I, with an audience question if you want to get started. Um, yeah, let's do that. Um, so uh, what are the main differences in your lived experience as a queer Asian between Australia and the US? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Um, I think for me, you know, I'm not Asian American. And so for me coming to the States five years ago, I learned a lot of the similarities and the differences between our lived experiences. And of course they're all different and can't be lumped together. But for me, I think growing up in Australia, uh, and I think this varies in a lot of different places, especially, you know, throughout the US, but in Australia, uh, very large majority white people, like 91% of the population is white. And so I think um, it just felt very, very deeply isolating. And I know that definitely happens with a lot of like Asian kids in America as well uh but for me it was like a very very like specific and lonely environment where even in my neighborhood there was literally one Chinese Samoan family who I was close to I think also in Australia and not to rag on Australia at all because I'm also healing my relationship with that place but there's actually a tendency for, I think, Australians to look toward the U.S. and to see what the U.S. Mm. is talking about. I think during, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S., which was long overdue, um, I think in Australia that actually beckoned the Australian people to ask the questions about how they treat Black Indigenous people in Australia. And while I appreciate that Australians did take like learn something from that i'm like you need to have initiative and to like kind of learn it yourself and to not just look at another western society to figure that out and so i think for me the process of like even feeling any kind of respect or um just baseline recognition in australia as an asian person as an asian writer has been kind of in slow motion. Um, also, I think in Australia, it was and still is extremely heteronormative. And I just couldn't be out there. Yeah, I, I felt really, really isolated in a very like unhealthy way. It felt, um, 
especially as a queer person too, I felt like, yeah, there may have been some Asian people, but I think the queer Asian community is extremely small where I'm from. And so that is my experience. And I think it is important to kind of make that distinction because I don't want to lump my, my experience as an Asian Australian person in with being an Asian American person, while at the same time seeing our similarities and the intersections because we are affected by colonization in similar ways. We are affected by white supremacy in similar ways. And so, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Um, speaking of like uh, this developing a, a healthier relationship to where you're from, um, and absolutely speak to this as much or as little as, as you want, but I was also very struck with um, the times your family comes up in the book and, and your parents and your grandfather, um, the elements of your grandfather are so moving. Um, I lost my grandfather at a very young age too. And the kind of the ways you talk about um, the fact that like you are still learning lessons and still sort of in relationship and in communion with someone who has passed um, with an elder is so touching and moving. And I just wanted to, and I, I think in your acknowledgments, you also say that um, you are working, um, your relationships have evolved with your your parents and your family. Yeah. Um, and you're working on that. And and I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about, about that process. Of course. I mean, uh, I actually had to, I deleted a lot of stuff about my family in the book because this like yeah. wave of guilt flowed over me, you know, like right. I definitely explored a few more explicit occurrences and I actually finished the book in Australia. I was able to go back for the first time in four years in December. And that's where I finished the book. And I remember reading over it and Johnny, I had like eight drafts, don't worry. But yeah. <laughs> I had that, you know, the final draft and I was looking at it. I was just like, no, I need to delete this. And I think mm -hmm. that is a part of my Asian experience too, feeling just guilty, right? Feeling yeah. like my ancestors are like, I'm so disappointed in you or something, right? <laughs> Just having that voice in my head, which I actually think, you know, even though it's not in the book, uh, is very telling of the experience of being an Asian writer and writing about family yeah. and the courage that it takes to write about family to kind of like free yourself of that guilt. And to be honest, I'm not free of it yet at all. Yeah. But I think... I made that choice also because I know that we're working on it and it really yeah. does feel like a fluid and transformative process. And I am giving my parents a lot of space um, to also sit with the harm they have caused me and to read the book actually, and to see for themselves and to know me better, to know me deeper. Um, yeah. But I think my grandfather was always such an anchoring point and, I do learn from him every day and in that way he's still a teacher and he still feels very alive to me in spirit um, because his wisdoms flow through every relationship that I'm a part of and mm. I actually do want to write about my family in my next book and I want to write about it with compassion because I am seeing how we're healing right now 
while also being honest about the harm that I think intergenerational trauma can cause. And I think my role in my family as someone who wants to end those cycles of harm, you know, I think, yeah, yeah I I felt so um, closed about that for such a long time, but I feel myself opening to the truth of my family and how also like if I'm talking about romantic relationships, I think inevitably my family does play a role in how I treat my lovers because they're the first experience of love that I've ever had. Yeah. 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 I, the reason I, I think you tapped into the reason I asked is because I think as an Asian writer, as a fellow Asian writer, there's, um, that is the constant, one of the constant questions of like, where does that sort of, where is that line of being able to be honest and open about the things you want to talk about and the things you want to share versus this sort of like very um, Asian familial idea of like your responsibility as a child and um, <laughs> the sort of like saving face idea, which you do write yeah. about a little bit. Um, yeah. which I, I think is, I, every time you talked about your parents or your family, I was like, oh, scene, scene, I feel it. I know, like, you didn't have to write, you didn't yeah, have to include everything. I was just like, I understand. I am, and I, and I, I think there is something really beautiful about kind of putting your relationship to them, your like in person, your growing, evolving, changing relationship to them. Um, with them kind of in front of whatever like output of work you're doing is because I think that's also a very hard thing as a writer um, to be like, well, do I, do I convert this trauma into work or do I work on this thing privately? Um, That's such a, that's such a complex kind of calculus. We have um, another audience question that ties into that a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. They're asking if you feel comfortable and totally okay if you don't. Could you speak about how your relationship with your body has shifted, if at all, throughout your journey of healing from trauma? Thank you, Nat, for that question. I appreciate you so much. Um, uh, Johnny, kind of going off what you said, I'm learning to write about my parents. I'm learning. I'm just learning how yeah. to write up everything. I'm, I'm learning how to write about my relationship with my body. And not to respond to your question, um, I, especially when I was moving through my traumatic relationship, I lived in my head so much. It was like the place that my somatic memory returned to, where I would logicize everything. I just theorize and, you know, kind of calculate everything in my head and I lived in my head so much, it felt like I was sleepwalking, you know, like I would just move from point A to point B, kind of in a a trance. And I think in the last few years in my healing journey, which, you know, has been very challenging. One of my greatest and things I'm most grateful for that my therapist has taught me that is so simple, again, returning to the simple, is doing like the full body scan check-in right? Especially when I'm so in my head, so fearful, feeling really triggered. My therapist 
my therapist's voice basically like has kind of made a nest in my head, a really safe, warm place. And I ask myself, how am I feeling right now? Right. Mm. That's like baseline one. And mm -hmm. second, where do you feel it? So when I'm feeling really anxious or ashamed or dread, I know that I'm like, okay, I'm feeling this way. I'm scared of that. And then I'm like, and I'm feeling it in my chest. I'm always, I feel a lot of it in my chest, actually. I'm feeling it in my throat. I'm feeling it in my shoulders. And that helps me so much because it helps me remember that I have a body, right? I think the thing about dissociation sometimes, especially when you're in a traumatized state, is that you don't even remember that you exist, right? You just kind of think that you're like this consciousness moving through the world, floating, but you're not right? Your body is there. It's real. It's tactile. It's decaying. And for me, like, I got to really know my body and the ways that it shows up. And not only that, I also got to see and kind of discern, you know, if I felt this sensation in my chest, if I felt this heat in my ears, right, I could then do that check-in again and be like, oh, your body is feeling this way. Are you good? Right? So I guess that's how I would respond to that question. Um, my relationship with my body has changed in the ways that I remember it again as a healing person. So I appreciate you, Nat, for answering that question. It means a lot to me. Fantastic. Um, do we have room for, can I ask one more question? And then maybe that's a, a closing one. Um, this might be difficult to answer uh, because you mentioned in the book that love is a thing that sort of resists definition. Um, but if you could, could you maybe just not even like what the, the all big definition is, but like today at this moment, sort of what, what, how are you defining love and, and what is love? Um, just maybe for now. I know it's it's such a hard question, but I just I I love when you talk about it. So it's beautiful. Um, I think love is a state of embodiment. I think love is waking up and having the capacity to see that leaf unfurling in your pot, right? And and seeing how it's connected to your life. Um, I think love is being courageous enough to share what you're feeling with somebody else, even when it's not pretty, even when it's jagged and it's spiky. And I think love is honesty always. Being around someone who makes you feel safe enough to be honest. Mm -hmm. So I think in ways, love is such a big embodiment, but it also comes in such small occurrences, right? In such moments of the day. And I've been experiencing so much of that lately, especially as the book comes out, like just having someone say like, thank you for writing this. I, I felt you, I, I've resonated with you, has been so loving because it's really felt like they're honest enough to tell me that and I'm on an, honest enough to receive it. So I think love is embodied. I think love is inseparable from us. I think it's a practice. I think it's everything. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, let me be another person to say that this really um, touched me and was was so stunning. And it felt like I really 
um, felt like you were right next to me. And like, it, it felt like you were just sharing all the things um, that, that you know. And I just, I felt that you were an ancestor in reading this. Um, so yeah, so thank you for this book. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you so much, Mimi, uh, for writing the book and for being here tonight. Um, and thank you, Johnny, for your wonderful questions. This has been so incredible. Um, and huge thank you to everyone who's here um, in the digital space. Yeah, we appreciate you a lot. So. Yay. Yay. And um, Yay. this will be available for replay. So uh, share it, watch it again. Um, yeah. And thank you so much. Yeah. And read the book. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> yeah, read the book. Read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.